welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Well, a long time ago, a woman named Marianne Moore wrote a poem. She called the poem Poetry. And in this poem, she colorfully describes authentic poetry occurring when the poets who are among us, now her words, Prevent for, present for inspection imaginary gardens with real toads. And I just love that phrase. That, that second phrase, that image of an imaginary garden with real to- toads in it. And this wonderful phrase, as Dave already mentioned, is the title of a new series we're beginning today where we are going to be looking at various parables of Jesus and trying to see in these imaginary gardens the real things, the true things, that exists therein. Now, you may be wondering, why such a weird title? I mean, can't we ever do something simple? Why do we complicate stuff around here so much? Maybe someday we could do a series and just call it Jesus. And it'd be simple and we could do it and it wouldn't be so complicated. Over the past several weeks, I've mentioned to several people the title of this new series. And every time people kind of turn and tilt their head a little bit and they frown their eye and furrow their brow for just a few seconds. And then there's this kind of, oh, I see it. This kind of, ah, like that. And that kind of image sort of picks up what we're talking about today. It kind of gets at it. You can see up on the screen the graphic for this series. It illustrates the title perfectly. Cody did an amazing job putting this together. There's a picture, a painting of an imaginary garden And jumping right out of it is a live toad. A pretend world animated by things here and there that are actually real. One scholar says parables are stories depicting an imaginary world that reflects reality. And for the next seven weeks, we're going to do our best to, in the language of the poet, present for inspection the imaginary gardens that are the parables of Jesus and hopefully together discover the real, life-altering, very much upending, against the grain, upstream, hidden truths within these parables. So let's talk about telling stories to reveal the kingdom. And I want to start by exercising our imagination muscles. I want to begin this time by asking you to kind of engage with me in sort of a hypothetical story and do the work to put yourself in the story. It is a cold and blustery midwinter night. The fireplace is lit. Your three-year-old child or grandchild or niece or nephew is all ready for bed. Dinner is over. Their bath is done. Their jammies are on. Let's just say to get in the picture, they're wearing a cute onesie as they're getting ready for bed. And there's water in their sippy cup. And they kind of waddle over to you who are relaxing in your comfortable chair near the fire. And as they waddle over, they're carrying their favorite book in one hand and their favorite blankie in the other hand. Hopefully you're in the story. Now this little three-year-old sets the book up and crawls up into the chair with you and snuggles under your right arm, continuing to back in and get as tight as they can and your arm is completely around them, and they hand you the book, or you pick it up, and they say, can you read this to me? And so you take the book, and you begin with the title. 
This story is called The World Almanac and Book of Facts, 2021. Probably not likely, is it? Because children don't want cold, hard facts. They want stories. I mean, they never say, can you read me some facts? They say, can you read me a story? Can you tell me a story? When our kids were younger, we used to travel to Arizona on a pretty regular basis. My parents lived there. My brother would come from Milwaukee. He'd bring his kids. So we had our three. My brother's kids were two. So these five kids. And I made, I guess it was a mistake, but it was kind of fun. I wrote a story. I just let my mind wander once. And I wrote a story uh, about this fictional character called Ernie von Schledorn. Now, Ernie von Schledorn is actually a car dealer in Menominee Falls in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but those little kids didn't know that. So Ernie von Schledorn was this character in these stories, and Ernie gets lost inside of a pinball machine one time, and he goes out the back end of the pinball machine, and it empties out into this whole new universe. Another time, he's driving up to Lake Tahoe, and he has to go to the bathroom, and he gets out of the car, and he goes off into the trees, and there's this wind blowing, and he ends up all these adventures, and I would sort of write these things and kind of tell the kids, and they would come up to me every day of the trip, and they would say to me, are you going to tell us one of those stories tonight? And I hadn't planned on it. And then I'd have to sit down and figure out what I was going to do. But there's something about a story. The other night, Julie and I watched another movie. I mentioned this last week. We watched one. The other night, we watched the movie Rudy, another old movie. It's about a talentless football player with this lifelong dream to play football at the University of Notre Dame. I've seen it a gazillion times, but once again, the story just pulled me in. I could not resist it. And I felt a little bit, I don't know, like how is this old movie that I've seen a gazillion times doing it to me again? And I kept getting drawn in, and by the end of the movie, I was crying, and I just kind of glanced over, and Julie was sobbing, and we had this emotional experience. Something about stories, the plot, the drama, the unexpected. Ooh, didn't know it was going that way. A new twist, a new turn. It sort of coaxes us into another world and pulls at something, I think, that is deeply embedded in each one of us. Stories inspire. They clearly entertain They awaken our emotions. They have a way of going past our defenses and quickening something within us that might be on its way to dying. And sometimes stories challenge old paradigms we have and well-worn ways of thinking. And it's not just children who love or need stories. Everyone loves a story. We learn best through stories. We learn best when we see the truth instead of just hearing the truth. Stories stories in some way are like scalpels. They open us up very gently. They open us up, and they open us up to see the truth more clearly, to hear it in a fresh way, and to experience it like never before. Parables, stories, were Jesus' preferred form of communication and teaching. N.T. Wright says, Jesus didn't tell parables to provide friendly little illustrations of abstract theology, he told parables because what he was doing was so different, so explosive, and so dangerous that the only way he could talk about it was to use stories. I think what Wright is saying is, had he brought the full weight of what he was saying 
directly to people. Their defenses would have gone up and they would have resisted it. So he had to go around. He had to go, if you will, not through the front door. He had to go through a side door or maybe through a side window. My job today is to introduce us to these stories, what they are, what they're trying to accomplish in us, why Jesus used parables and stories, and why they are so explosive indeed. So a large crowd is pressing in on Jesus. So he gets in a boat, sits down, and pushes out a bit from the shore so that his voice is amplified and this large crowd can hear him. And he tells a story about a farmer who went out to sow his seed. Now stop right there. Such an image was, or such a visual was familiar to everybody in the crowd because they would immediately recognize, oh yeah, we know what this is about. There's farms and there's fields all over Palestine where they live. So Jesus grabs onto this very everyday life situation and he tells this story. The farmer scattered his seed, he threw it, and as he threw it, it landed on different kinds of soil. He's just walking around, no machinery, no fancy technology, just throwing seed in all directions, not too concerned with where it's going, confident enough of it will land and take. Four kinds of soil are mentioned in this parable. Get this part, 75% of the soils mentioned are not receptive to the seed. And as we're jumping ahead a bit, but the message of the kingdom, in other words, does not sink in 75% of the time. The soil is either too hard, too shallow, or too overcrowded, so the seed never takes root, and it never produces a crop. As we go through this series, we're going to hear this over and over again. Parables are stories with a purpose, and often the purpose is hidden. Jesus tells these stories to accomplish something in those who are listening. He's trying to grab the attention of those who are listening and literally move them in some direction. This parable about sowing seed is about hearing, understanding, and appropriately responding to the message of the kingdom of God. That is the purpose inside of this parable. That is the live toad in this imaginary garden. It's about how human beings react to God and to his kingdom message. So the kingdom of God wants to take root in those who hear about it. But in this parable, it doesn't take root in the vast majority of those who hear about it because they aren't actually listening. Parables are stories with a hidden purpose. And they're not always simple stories. They're not always easy to understand. But when the parables are allowed to say what they want to say, instead of what we might want them to say, these parables can actually be confusing. They can be sobering for sure. They really have a way of grabbing our attention. And they can be even a bit frustrating because it's just not this obvious, simple thing. It requires us to work a little bit. The essence of a parable is a story to help us understand the kingdom of God and live it out in the granular details of our everyday lives. But it's not always obvious what this purpose is. Not always easy. It's not always sitting there right at the surface that we can just reach out and grab. And it's not always predictable. In fact, it's rarely predictable. The purpose, the point, is rarely Predictable. So let me put it this way. Jesus' teaching is so multi-layered and so wonderfully 
profound, it actually takes work on our part if we're going to authentically understand it. He is, his is the kind of teaching then that moves way down into our guts. It moves way past the, the level of sort of knowing in our head and it goes way down to the level of our guts. His is the kind of teaching that opens us up to a kind of knowing that is many miles beyond knowing about. You can almost feel the weight of its substance and truth. I, I don't know if you've had this experience where you've been in some situation where some kind of teaching of Jesus is being set forth and for some reason it is literally landing on you in a way where you absolutely know in your guts this is the truth of the universe. You can feel the weight of it. You can feel the substance of it. Jesus's is the kind of teaching that when we get it, we immediately realize there's a whole lot more to get. So knowing becomes an ongoing adventure rather than a fixed destination. And this is what the parables are opening us up to. Now remember, Jesus is telling this parable to a big crowd gathered on the shore of this lake. And there are all kinds of people in this crowd. Religious leaders are there. Pharisees are there. Religious teachers are there. People who are experts in the Old Testament law are standing in the large crowd. There are also the very poor who are there. The heavily burdened. Many, maybe even most in the crowd, when they were young children, they grew up being schooled in Jewish history and they were brought up to revere the Old Testament law and they were brought up to revere and respect the prophets. But others in the crowd who maybe had been brought up that way had long ago walked away from all that stuff. They were what we might call irreligious. Their life was uninhibited by religious ideas or religious instruction. So you have this eclectic, big crowd listening to Jesus, but instead of speaking directly and clearly about who he is, what the kingdom of God is like, and what God wants from people, he instead veils these truths in these strange stories. Almost like he's hiding the truth inside of a story which is precisely what he's doing. So let's talk about this idea of arousing curiosity to disturb certainty. And as we think about this in our time, and I'll mention this in a few moments, but I think this is a prevailing theme of all the parables, that Jesus is trying to arouse curiosity to disturb certainty. Let me say that a tad more strongly. Jesus is trying to arouse curiosity in people who long ago stopped being curious because they started being certain that they knew the truth. He's trying to awaken curiosity again. He's trying to provoke and stir, go through a side window to resurrect curiosity in people who are certain they already know. A while back, I got some noise-canceling headphones, those Apple kind. And they're an amazing invention. I, I really like them. I was, an airplane, I was on an airplane recently, and when I boarded, I went, got in my seat, and I put these noise-canceling earphones in, and I started watching, you know, big surprise here, another old movie. 
And so I was watching this movie. We hadn't taken off yet. And every now and then, as I'm sitting here like this, I would look up and see people coming down the aisle of the plane. And I would see their mouths moving, but I couldn't hear a thing they were saying. All I could hear was the movie. I was in my own world. Nothing else was getting in. And it was glorious, actually. Now, I felt kind of bad about this. But before takeoff, a flight attendant came and was just a few feet in front of me. And she started demonstrating what another flight attendant was saying over the loudspeaker about what to do in the event of emergency water landing, how to start the flow of oxygen, how to buckle and unbuckle our seatbelt, and how smoking was not permitted. Now, I didn't hear her say any of this. I had my noise-canceling headphones in. I already know all this. I've heard this a gazillion times. I could give that little speech. I've heard it many times before, and I don't need to know, go over it again. I know it. It's in me. And so I got noise-canceling headphones on, so I can't hear that. There's something about being in my own world, wearing noise-canceling headphones, while flight attendants are talking, that seems like a pretty decent picture of how we sometimes come to and approach the teaching of Jesus. Eh, we've heard it before. Yeah, I already know that one. Nothing new here. Headphones in. Blah, 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 off in the distance. Now, it doesn't look like that. We don't actually put headphones in. They're actually installed and they're invisible, but they work incredibly good. I got that one. I've heard that one before. I know that. Noise-canceling headphones. Let's, for the sake of today, call it certainty. We get it. We got it. We know it. And what we get, got, and know is right. And anyone who thinks otherwise is wrong. We get it. We got it. We know it. And we're right. And if you don't get it, got it, or know it, you're wrong. We get it, we got it, we know it, and this is what we get, this is what we got, this is what we know, and this is right, and if you're over here, this is wrong. Or if you're over here, you're less wrong, but still wrong. If you're over here, you're still wrong, but not as much. you got to be over here. Get it, got it, know it right. This is the world we live in. You know this. In this parable of the sown seed, and really in all of Jesus' parables, he's trying to arouse curiosity in this group, his listeners. He's trying to disrupt their certainty. They think they know. We think we know. Jesus hides truth in stories, hoping they realize eventually they don't really know. And hoping we realize. We think we know, but we don't really know. Or we don't fully know. I just think this is really important for us to consider given the days we're living in for a few minutes. Because we are living in a time when all kinds of people are certain that their views and opinions on this or that are right. And anyone who doesn't agree is wrong. People are intense about their certainty these days. And for Christ followers... Somehow, being right 
has become a higher priority than being righteous. In fact, in some Christian circles, being right is synonymous with being righteous. And yet for the one who seeks to align with Jesus and gradually and incrementally orient their life around Jesus and follow him, humility is a non-negotiable. Humility is a prerequisite to a faith that is growing and to a life that is transforming. And it is exceedingly difficult, impossible, really, for certainty and humility to coexist. I'm certain I'm right about this, but I remain humble about it. It just doesn't work. I I don't think it can work. Where there is humility of any authentic variety, there can still be conviction. There will be conviction, but this conviction will be held in an open hand. But certainty is so often in a closed-fisted hand, tightly gripped. I'm right, you're wrong. I get it, you don't. I know, and you don't know. This is really important for us to think about as the people of Jesus. The farmer sowed his seed. It landed on four different kinds of soils. And in verse 9, Jesus abruptly ends the story he shares to the large crowd by saying, whoever has ears, let them hear. So we read 23 verses. Only nine of those verses were offered to the large crowd. His teaching to the large crowd ended at the end of verse 9. And then his disciples say, why do you do this? Why do you talk in these weird parable stories thing? No one knows what you're talking about. That's all all that explanation, all the here's what the soils mean, that's all to the disciples. The, The large crowd that was sitting there at that lake When he told them about the soils, he abruptly ended and said, whoever has ears, let them hear. He gives no explanation of the meaning of the story. No long-winded sermon about the implications of the parable in the lives of those who were listening. He ends abruptly with, whoever has ears, let them hear. And then he walks away. And he goes and spends time with his disciples. And with his disciples, he further unpacks explains and goes through the nuances and the meaning of the parable. It's almost like he's dropped the riddle on the big crowd and then he walks away without giving the answer. In fact, that's exactly what he's doing. And doesn't that seem in one sense kind of strange, but in another sense, rather wonderful? Four soils, one is too hard for any seed to grow, one is too shallow, one is too choked out by other stuff, One is receptive and brings forth an abundant harvest. But he inserts this little thing in that story where that fourth seed is the only seed called good soil. So three of them are not good soil. One of them is good soil. Drops this riddle on him and then he walks away. It's like he's saying, here's the riddle. Ponder it or not. Think about it, or don't. It's your choice. See, by itself, ending at verse 9, I imagine this parable confused many, if not most, in the crowd. Talk about heads tilting. 
like a bunch of yellow labs, and their master's talking to them, and they're doing this, like, huh? No idea what he's talking about. Jesus presents an imaginary garden teeming with real toads, but you can almost hear the crowd mumbling under their breath, what in the world is he talking about? Imagine that same kind of mumbling happens around here on a regular basis. What in the world is he talking about? So the disciples, when the crowd is kind of dispersed, the disciples ask, why do you do it this way? I mean, why do you speak to people in parables? No one understands what you're talking about. <coughs> disciples actually seem frustrated by the indirectness of Jesus' teaching. If you'll permit me to go back to this metaphor, why don't you ever just go through the front door instead of around the side, up the side of the house, and in one of the windows. Why riddles without answers? Stories without conclusions? Illustrations without first saying, what's the principle you're trying to illustrate? There's no principle. Here's the illustration. Here's the story. Here's the riddle. It's like they're saying, can you be a little more clear, Jesus? A bit more direct. Don't sugarcoat it so much. Or a really fun thing that people are saying nowadays. Can't you just make it more black and white? And his answer is quite shocking. He says, because the knowledge of the secrets, literally the mysteries, of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, that is the disciples, but not to them, that is the crowd. And then Jesus continues, this is why I speak to the crowd in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And then he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. Everybody in the crowd, different as they were, knew about Isaiah. They knew who he was. He was the Michael Jordan of prophets, who 700 years earlier had urged the Israelites to turn back to God or disaster would soon come. And Jesus says this crowd gathered here at the shore, he says to his disciples, they fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. Then he cites Isaiah's prophecy. This people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they've closed their eyes Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. I mean, kind of harsh, Jesus, don't you think? Parables are often prophetic like this. In fact, they have the texture and the tone of a prophecy. They have the edge of a prophecy. And so these parables would have registered with the listeners as being very similar to the Old Testament prophets. So you see what Jesus is doing here. By talking this way, Jesus is linking himself to the bigger story of God's ongoing shalom movement that went way back in history that many of these people knew about. And he is linking his listeners to this long history of God's people who, though seeing, don't see and though hearing, don't actually hear. He's pulling this stuff from the past and he's saying, here it is right now in the present. Matthew 13, verse 34. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. The prophet had said, I'll open my mouth in parables. I'll utter things hidden 
since the creation of the world. Do you see the connection? What Matthew is trying to do is saying, you all have known that the prophecy from old was that the one who would be the prophet would open their mouth in parables and utter things hidden since the creation of the world. And now he has come in the person of Jesus. So Jesus hides truth in stories, not to keep people from knowing what it is, but to find out who has eyes that actually see and ears that actually work. He's trying to find out who's got the noise cancellation thing out when he's talking. He's trying to find out whose heart is actually open to him and to what he's teaching about reality. He tells riddles without answers to see who's hungry for reality. Let me give you a picture of it. When he says, he who has ears, let them hear, and walks away. There's many in that crowd who probably looked at each other and went like this and went to lunch. There's probably others who sat there and thought, why did I waste my time doing this? And went home. But there were probably a few in the crowd who after he was done, they went, huh? What is that? Something in me is fluttering, rattling around a little bit. Something in me thinks this guy's got something to say. I can't quite figure out what it was, but it sure is intriguing. I need to think about this. The riddle was given. Some people walk away and go, well, that was silly. Didn't tell us the answer to the riddle. Other people walk away and go, huh, that's intriguing. I need to mull that over for a while. That's what Jesus is looking for. He's looking for people who are hungry. Hungry for reality. It's not that he's keeping truth and reality from people. It's that he knows human beings so well, he knows they don't really want truth and reality. People live, in other words, with noise-canceling headphones on, happily lost in their own world. And even when Jesus is talking, we all have a tendency to do this, well, we got something going on in our ears. See, Jesus' parables are stories with a hidden purpose. They're like those pictures you look at. And when you first look at it, you see one thing, like a duck's head. But if you look at it long enough, all of a sudden something else starts to emerge, like a rabbit's head. Oh, there's a duck's head, but there's also a rabbit's head. Or the picture of a vase. You've seen this one. You look at it. Oh, that's a vase. Yeah, look a little longer. Ah, that's a vase, but there's two faces looking at each other as well. That's what's happening in these parables. In the parables, Jesus is trying to tell us, look a little longer. Sit there for a second. Because if you do, you're going to see reality. He's saying, this is how you think things are. But this is how they actually are. He's trying to arouse curiosity and disrupt certainty and Man, do we need a giant spoonful of this these days. Jesus' goal then in the parables is to awaken, prompt new thinking, seed our imagination, arouse curiosity, inspire fresh acts of faithfulness, especially in those who think they already have and already know the truth. Now, I don't know about you, but I can see myself in the crowd on the shore of the lake, listening to this parable of the farmer 
sowing seeds. I can see myself. I'm right there. I'm standing there near the water's edge. My sandals are wet because the waves are lapping against my feet. And when Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear, I want to be one of the few who goes, huh. One of the few who's intrigued. I want to be one of the ones whose soul, however slightly, however faintly, is stirred. I want to be the kind of Christ follower who never stops being curious because my king can handle my curiosity. He's not threatened by it. He's not insecure. If my curiosity kicks in, he's not threatened by my curiosity. I want to be one of the ones that's open, open-handed. I want to be in listening mode. I want to have the humility to stay in learning mode. I want to be hungry for reality, always in learning mode. I don't know how one can be a Christ follower and not be curious. Because life with Jesus is dynamic. It's relationship. It's dynamic, not static. The Word of God, as Hebrews tells us, is living and active. So it does things in the inner lives of people who will let it do those things. It is the story of God's ongoing shalom project in this world. It's not a world almanac or big book of facts about shalom. Faith, think about it. Trust. The root word for faith in the New Testament is pistis. It means knowledge, knowing, but not the kind of knowledge or knowing that we're talking about. It means knowledge or knowing like trust. And this is far different than certainty. Certainty claims to know, period. Trust claims to know, sort of, but still trusts anyway. Certainty is based on the need of the individual to feel safe and in control. Trust is based on the character of the one we are trusting. Certainty is a huge temptation for pastors or religious leaders. Certainty is a huge temptation for people who've been in churches for a long time. Certainty is a huge temptation for people who have professed to be Christian for a long time. Curiosity is a woefully undervalued Christian character quality, in my opinion. Think of the things you think of when you think that's a characteristic of someone who's full of the Holy Spirit and growing in Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. Where's curiosity on your list? See, curiosity has to do with teachability. It has to do with humility. Ears that want to hear. Eyes that want to see. Certainty, the way we are talking about it then, is a sign of spiritual immaturity. Curiosity is a sign of spiritual maturity because Jesus is our king. He can handle our curiosity. And if we are following him, he will shape and mold the journey and we will grow in ways we cannot fathom. Certainty gives the illusion of safety. Trusting in Jesus means we are actually safe, no matter what happens. 
So finally, a word on shrinking the crowd to grow a community. Jesus was pretty good at attracting a crowd, but he was a lot better at shrinking a crowd. So he purposely said and did things to shrink the crowd so he could grow a community of friends and followers. And we see this all throughout the Gospels. One phrase will say a large crowd was gathering, and in the next breath or two, Jesus is saying something or doing something to shock the large crowd and weed it out. 75 going one way, 25 going another. It's stated so perfectly back in verse 9. Whoever has ears, let them hear. He's always doing this with the crowd. He's inviting the hearer in the crowd, the one who stirred to become a doer. He invites the hearer in the crowd to reconsider their understanding of reality. He invites the hearer in the crowd to reorient their everyday lives and choices around the king and his kingdom for the one who says, I've already done that. I already know reality. Fine, good. Have at it. This is a good place for us to end. Intentionally abrupt. That picture, out of the crowd and into the community of Jesus' friends. It's about movement. Not big, giant leaps. Movement. Inches. Hmm. What is that? What's that mean? There's a lot of layers to this. There's a lot of depth to this. This isn't floating up here. This is just spiraling all the way down into here. And as the spiral whirls around, it swirls up stuff within. Whoa. How does this within me relate to what he's saying and to who he is and to the depth of his teaching? Movement. Openness. Teachability. Huh. Reconsidering. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence. Thank you for the way in which you stay with us in the midst of our many cycles. The twists and turns, you are there. And thank you for the way in which if we will listen, if we will pause, if we will ponder. These things you say, they, they just are like time-release capsules. They just go, and then they keep going. What would it be like for us to continue to have good soil within to have followed you for a long time, perhaps, to have been in church for a long time, perhaps, or not. But to be people who have good soil within, teachable, humble, ears that work, eyes that see, hearts that understand, wills that follow. I pray that as we jump into this and, and dig into these things and let you speak and let these time-release capsules release, I pray that you will churn within us in such redemptive and good ways. Hope would rekindle in us. Change would happen. And our love for you would deepen as we allow you to speak, teach, and train us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.